Good morning. Welcome to the Long Live Alternative Parties podcast. Free Press Media Press Inc. and Alternative Parties Books Publisher sponsors this podcast. I'm Andrew Bouchard. Hello. Hello. Greetings. Welcome to the Long Live Alternative Parties podcast. Thanks for having me. We're glad to have you. Friends, today we have Christopher Pearson from the National Popular Vote. He's going to talk to us about an electoral reform issue that you will be excited about. So welcome, Christopher. Thanks for having me. Um, are we recording already? We are indeed. So right. if you can kindly give us an introduction to yourself, a brief biographical sketch for our audience. Sure. Um, so I'm Chris Pearson. I work with National Popular Vote, uh, which is a state-based effort to reform the Electoral College, create a, a popular vote, one person, one vote, get the most votes, you win. Um, I also serve in the Vermont State Senate, um, and I run for office um, as a duly nominated by the Progressive Party and the Democratic Party. All right. So kindly tell us when the National Popular Vote Organization got started. Sure. Uh, we got started in 2006. Um, and our bill, uh, because states control the Electoral College, our bill depends on uh, a number of states joining together so that um, in order to create a popular vote, we have to have states that hold 270 electors, a majority of the electors. The first we started in 2006, Maryland became the first state to pass our bill in 2007. And we're now up to 15 states plus the District of Columbia. Together, those states have 195 electors. So we need states with 75 more electors before we um, have a popular vote for president. Sounds good. So kindly tell us what arguments are in favor of national popular vote versus the way we have it right now. Sure. Well, I, I would argue uh, strongly that the way we elect the president is broken, badly damaged, uh, hurts the country. It hurts our democracy. It hurts voters. It hurts most states. Um, and that's for a number of reasons. One is you can get uh, the most votes and not win the election. That's that's pretty strange. Um, the second is our election process is highly concentrated in a small number of battleground states. Um, so, for instance, in the 2020 election, 94% uh, of the campaign, if you measure where the candidates were spending money, where they were visiting and holding rallies, 94% of the whole election in the fall was in 12 states. And that holds true, I think it was 96%. Uh, of the 2016 election was in 12 states. And in fact, 100% of the 2012 election took place in 12 states. So voters in 70% of the country are completely taken for granted. They don't visit us. They don't poll us. They don't advertise to us. There's no grassroots activity. We are taken for granted as we sit on the sidelines. Uh, I live in Vermont. If you want to get involved in a presidential election in Vermont, you get in your car and drive to New Hampshire because New Hampshire is a so-called battleground state. Now, what does that mean for for 
the country. Well, it means 70% of voters live in states that are basically safe, reliable blue states or red states, right? Democratic states or Republican states. And, and I live in a blue state. It's not like the Democrats cater to us. Joe Biden never came to visit us in Vermont because he knows he's already won and it doesn't do him any good. He's not going to make Vermont any bluer. And he doesn't visit voters in Idaho because he couldn't possibly win Idaho. And so, so we, we have a system that routinely uh, shuts out 70% of voters who are not, who are effectively not part of a campaign. This has an, uh, an impact on voter participation, on down ballot races, and then beyond the election it has an impact on things like no child left behind waivers, disaster declarations, things that are directly under the control of, of the chief executive tend to favor battleground states because you know, they're looking to get reelected or have their party continue. So, so all of that is really damaging. We also have uh, the fact that if you look at 2020, our most recent election, Joe Biden won by 7 million votes, over 7 million votes. In fact, the election was in question for a couple of weeks because the margin in the key um, pivotal states of Arizona, Wisconsin, and Georgia was less than 23,000 votes. So a margin of 7 million votes doesn't guarantee you the White House. In fact, we could well have seen the, the election go to the second place candidate to back to Trump. Uh, had 23,000 voters changed their mind uh, that happened to live in Arizona, Wisconsin, and Georgia. 23,000 total, mind you. So there's a, there's a sort of integrity, security kind of issue uh, in the way we elect the president right now. Uh, under a popular vote, it's just very straightforward. One person, one vote, get the most votes, you win. Your vote in rural Wisconsin is just as valuable as downtown Manhattan. Candidates are forced to campaign in all 50 states. We have a much broader discussion in a small state like mine. The candidates probably won't shower us with attention, but right now we they're, we are completely taken off the table. Um, and so we're not part of a discussion. Under a popular vote, the Democrats are going to say to blue state like Vermont, hey, we always win Vermont. Can we, we, we can you get me 5,000 more votes out of Vermont because I'm getting creamed in Alabama? And, and, and actually the Republicans in Vermont will say, hey, you know, I haven't cared what I lose by previous to this, but under popular vote, it matters. And, and can you, can we shrink the margin, right? Today, um, the Democrat in Idaho. Hello? So you were saying Democrat in Idaho? I was saying that the Democrats have no motivation to campaign in Idaho today, and they don't care if they lose Idaho by 7% or 17%, right? They just they're going to lose the electors under a popular vote. They would be motivated to shrink the margin. They're still not going to win the state, quote unquote, but they're going to try to contest for every vote. And in that way, that's replicated across the country. Um, and it would be, in my mind, very positive for for our uh, ownership for most Americans who are currently left out and taken for granted. So how do you plan to implement this? You were mentioning earlier about getting the states to get their legislation passed. Is that the strategy 
to get each yeah. state to get it passed? Yeah. So the states control the Electoral College and they, you know, the U.S. Constitution uh, says Article 2, Section 1 says each state shall and um, uh, each state. Oh, my God, I'm blanking out. It uh, gives states complete power over their own electors. Each state shall appoint in a manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors. So in Vermont, we get three electors. In New York, they get 29. Um, and the state law determines how those electors behave. Most states, 48 states, have passed what's called the winner-take-all law. So when Joe Biden gets one vote more than Donald Trump in Vermont, he wins all three electors. That's the winner-take-all law. But that's just state law. National popular vote has already been passed in, in 15 states plus D.C. And we're waiting for more states to come on board um, um, such that we, we need to get a, a states that hold a majority of the electors before it takes effect. Um, and uh, once there, once we get that threshold, so states that hold 270 electors, what those states are saying through this law is it doesn't matter what happens in our own state. We're going to have an election, add up the popular votes in all 50 states plus D.C., and whichever candidate gets the most votes will be guaranteed this block of 270 electors by virtue of the national popular vote bill and therefore they'll be guaranteed to go to the white house it will be one person one vote get the most votes you win the election on the fact sheet that you kindly provided to me about your organization it mentioned the history of winner take all and if i read it correctly it said in our start of our country it they started to do winner take all but then they changed is so what's the history of this national popular sure. vote well, so the, in the very first presidential election, uh, three states used winner-take-all. Then they all repealed it, in fact. And for many decades, states were trying different systems of awarding electors as, as the new country was kind of figuring it out. By the 1830s, uh, all states had shifted to winner-take-all, and that was really a political decision uh, where, where some... Uh, states were watch were carving up their electors, so you know, giving five to one candidate and four to another, um, and and then watching other states like Massachusetts, uh, for instance, just going all to winner take all. And so um, there was kind of a political motivation for states to adopt winner take all, but it's not in the Constitution. It wasn't endorsed by the founders or anything like that. And, and in fact, it's a state power. The Supreme Court's called it a, a plenary power. In other words, it only belongs to state legislatures to, um, to decide how their electors will work. A lot of people mention and are concerned with campaign finance. So would a national popular vote, if we implemented that, would that have a positive effect on the problems with campaign finance? Well, I think in a, in a way it would in that uh, it would be very empowering to the grassroots. Uh, like I use my state as an example in Vermont, you know, there are probably a few dozen Democratic Party volunteers and a few dozen Republican Party volunteers who will 
take the time to get in their car and drive 100 miles to door knock and and get engaged in new hampshire which is a battleground state nearby um but if you have a popular vote uh there's no reason to travel anymore to other states and so the grassroots everywhere would get empowered to hold campaign events talk to voters you know candidates who for the legislature and more local offices would also engage in the presidential election which doesn't happen now except for battleground states so i think you'd have a stronger role for grassroots and in my mind that diminishes some of the role for big money it is important to note that um you know right now there's there's record spending and tons of big money it's a big problem in my opinion um tons of big money going into presidential elections and all of that money is spent in eight to 12 states it's enormously concentrated in the battleground states um so when you if you switch to a popular vote that money will those resources will be spread around the country but there's no reason to think that that will uh lead to an explosion of spending because you know joe biden doesn't say no 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 keep your check i've only got a compete compete in 12 states they're raising all the money they can every four years we set records of spending uh it's just that the spending is uh concentrated intensely into just a dozen states so it's not a huge to me to my mind um it a popular vote doesn't solve our campaign finance challenges at all but it does empower the grassroots in a way that some argue will diminish um, the impact of big money what are some arguments people have against this and how do you counter those arguments um i would say the the most prevalent argument against this is that somehow if you count every vote equally and guarantee the the white house to the candidate gets the most votes that the cities that are big cities will have too much influence that that the entire power will be concentrated in the cities um, or in big states like New York and California will control the election. That the, some version of that argument is probably what we hear the most. In fact, the math says otherwise. New York and California make up 18% of the country. And of course, they're not a monolith. There's plenty of Republicans in both of those states. They, they approach 40% of the vote. And, and you can't just talk about New York and California and ignore Florida and Texas, which tend to be two red states that are also really big. In fact, now Florida is the second biggest, most populous state. Um, so the, the counter to the argument is to to look at the arithmetic involved. When we talk just about cities, people tend to think that our cities, that we have more cities and that they're bigger than than they really are. Um, the the hundredth biggest city is Arlington, Texas, has about three hundred thousand people. Um, according to the twenty ten census, there's only there's less than ten cities with more than a million people. Um, and in fact, the population of the hundred biggest cities is about nineteen percent of the country. And in fact, as it happens, rural Americans make up about nineteen percent of the population. So we're in fact quite balanced that way. Um, the other way to look at it is is to take a state like Pennsylvania, it has big cities um, and has a lot of rural voters. Trump famously carried Pennsylvania 
in 2016. Um, that was pivotal to his taking the White House. He did not win Philadelphia. He did not win Pittsburgh. So those cities weren't enough to carry Hillary Clinton um, in just within the state. And and so, um, you know, we, we just we just have to look at the data and, and help people understand um, that rural voters are, are critical to, to winning. There are countless examples of Republican governors in New York that never won Manhattan and, and, and in California that didn't win the big cities. And, and in fact, George W. Bush carried Ohio, uh, didn't win any of the cities there. So you can look at the data of what's really happened throughout the history of our elections and, and try to counter it. But people do come back to this myth quite a lot. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I read that your organization has a book on this topic. Kindly explain yeah. the book and where people can get it. Sure. You can get it uh, on Amazon or if people uh, reach out through the website, nationalpopularvote.com, we, we'd be glad to send people uh, a copy. It's called Every Vote Equal, and it is uh, sort of an authoritative textbook on the history of the Electoral College, the history of attempts at reforming the Electoral College and, uh, and the argument uh, for state action to uh, maintain the Electoral College, but in fact, change to a popular vote for president. Um, so every vote equal. Uh, take a look. You can order it on Amazon or, or shoot us an email. I, I'm sure we can find a copy to send to listeners that might be interested. Excellent. So kindly tell our audience how they can support your organization. Um, the best way that, that people can help us is to visit nationalpopularvote.com and click on the Take Action button. Um, that is a, a web tool. It makes it really easy to contact your local legislator. And, um, you know, this is an issue. Popular Vote for President is a popular idea, right, since the 1940s. Gallup has been polling this question and routinely two out of three or three out of four American voters supports a popular vote for president. But for let state legislators, um, you know, this our topic is not always uh, front of mind. And so people reaching out to their local state reps and their local state senators is really, really important and and engaging them in a dialogue and saying, hey, why shouldn't we use one person, one vote, guarantee the candidate with the most votes wins the election? Uh, please support national popular vote. That's really vital. And uh, our website makes it very easy for people to engage. And it would be wonderful to have uh, the more vo voices, the better from our point of view. Sounds great. So we thank you for coming onto our program today. And we wish your organization all the best with this endeavor. Well, thanks for reaching out and um, I appreciate the discussion. Have yourself a wonderful day and all the best. Bye-bye. Thank you.